0: Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. I'm Ed, joined as usual by Elliot Daniel with producer Liam in the studio. Uh, It's been a while since our last episode, don't worry guys, it's not you, we've had a lot of stuff going on. We've literally just come from the final closing night of the London Film Festival, where pitch house workers have been on strike again, and a loud, raucous demonstration Mm. took place in Leicester Square. So if
1: you you can hear a sort of, uh, you know, a pleasant huskiness,
0: a sort of husky timbre to Ed's voice and my voice. that's because we've been chanting very loudly. Shouting ourselves hoarse for the pitch house workers who are still very much in dispute. We've also, since we last recorded, had the first national ballot under the new Trade Union Act undertaken by this Communication Workers Union in Royal Mail. They balloted uh, over 100,000 of their members. They got a tremendous result, something approaching 90% yes, on a turnout of about 75%, which is a testament to all the the reps and activists in the CWU to be able to get that sort of turnout. Unfortunately, uh, as bosses tend to do these days, uh, Royal Mail ran to the courts and have successfully got an injunction uh, to prevent that strike from going ahead on incredibly spurious grounds but I'm sure that the union is is still very much keen to press on with that dispute so we'll see uh, we'll see how that develops in the coming weeks today we're going to be talking about uh, fascism and trade union responses to it and specifically trade unions organizing under their own names under their own banner uh, in response to fascism throughout history and today Uh, As a result, we're probably not going to mention some of the more famous uh, anti-fascist moments in history, uh, which were undertaken by maybe community organisations or broader alliances uh, like Cable Street, like the Battle of Lewisham. Uh, We'll probably mention the Spanish Civil War in passing, but we won't talk about it in great detail uh, because we're going to be looking specifically at how trade unions have responded to the threat of fascism. We think it's important to talk about this topic now because we're facing the rise of fascist and other hard right-wing movements around the world, particularly in Europe and North America. Uh, Recently, a socialist comrade, of course, was murdered on a counter-protest against fascists in Charlottesville in America. A few years ago, you had the the terrible attack by an individual fascist on the Norwegian Labour Party at at, at Utoya, And just generally in a lot of European countries, um, the rise of right-wing populist parties that aren't exactly fascist but around the fringes of those organisations as well, actual fascist uh, sort of street fighting movements uh, that are very very hostile to the labour movement. Um, So Ellie is first going to sort of take us through a definition of uh, fascism as a term because it it gets thrown around a lot and it actually refers to something quite specific so we're going to talk about that first of all. Um, I'm going to talk about how some groups of workers mainly transport workers responded to classical fascism in the 20s and 30s and uh, Daniel is finally finally after many weeks and months of intense begging going to be able to talk about lobbying campaigning <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't begging it was begging, it was begging. <laughs> going to be able to talk about the Minneapolis teamsters and how they responded to the threat of fascism uh, so Ellie's going to kick us off
2: Yeah, so as Ed said, it's important to define fascism because it is a word that gets used a lot, often mistakenly or just as some sort of insult. But fascism is far more than a set of, like, nasty ideas. You can, for instance, be nationalist and racist without being a fascist. Although I would argue that you can't be fascist without being nationalist and racist. You can also be totalitarian without being a fascist. Um, Fascism isn't actually that obvious or that easy of a thing to define Um, and we could argue all day about what it really is many people spend a lot of time doing that but I'm going to talk about a few characteristics that I think define a fascist movement It's important to reiterate however, a movement or a regime can encompass one or more of these characteristics without actually being fascist but if you've got all of these characteristics coming into play then I believe you have yourself a fascist movement So the first thing I kind of want to get out of the way um, is that we believe, and it's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast, that fascism in its very political DNA is mortally hostile towards the trade union movement, the labor movement and the wider left wing. There can never be peace between these two ideologies. um, And that's something that we just want to underline straight away before I even go into like further definitions of what fascism is. Um, So the big and quite obvious one is that fascism is ultra-nationalistic. It completely relies on an idea of like restoring national pride and restoring a nation to its greatness. But in order to do this, it must first cure the nation of some sort of sickness. Now, what that sickness is changes depending on the time and the regime. So, for instance, in Italy, under Mussolini, it was the communists in the left. Under Hitler in Germany, it was predominantly the Jews, as we know, although it was also the left, the Romani community, and anybody who didn't uh, fit into this perfect Aryan mould. And with baby fascist movements in kind of Europe and the States today, the sickness is any immigrant who isn't of European descent. Um, and it often has a strong focus on the Islamic faith. But again, it's also the left. So as you can see, there is a pattern forming here.
0: It's interesting you say that, um, because just as you were saying it, obviously it makes you think of Donald Trump. Like I don't think Donald Trump is a fascist. I don't think his regime, I think, is, is light years away from being fascist. Mm. But the sort of political rhetoric he uses, mm. curing the nation of a sickness, make, restoring the nation to a sort of past era of yeah, greatness,
2: make America great you can you know.
0: see how that gives so much confidence and, and, and legitimacy to people the people who are actually like proper fasc, yeah, know and I, th- and I think that's that's another reason why it's important that we're
1: talking about this now and that these conversations do take place within the labor movement because i think even in a period like this you'll get some some people on the left and in the labor movement who say look we you don't want to be alarmist let's not like blow these things out of proportion we're nowhere near like a situation where trade unions or left-wing organizations are being threatened by fascist street fighters and like to a certain extent, that's true, and you don't want to be alarmist or or or, or blow things out of proportion. But we are clearly in a situation where th- there are factors that could, through a like perfectly conceivable chain of events, lead to a very different situation. I and mean, if we're not prepared for that, and if we don't look at the history of how our movements responded to the fascist threat in the past, then we're going to be disarmed. So it's important that these conversations take place, even in periods where the far right seems weak or marginalised.
2: Also, I think it's really important to state as well that, like, we are weak and marginalised. Like, the labour movement is on the back foot. We are weak Mm. and marginalised. If we don't start talking about these threats now and understanding these threats now, then actually you could conceivably see a situation where it was almost sweeping without a strong opposition if we don't sort our shit out. If that makes, like... Um, so another thing is that um, fascists may use the parliamentary system to propagate their ideas, but fascism is not a parliamentary movement. Fascism has its base in large street movements. Um, so if you think about kind of like the EDL marching through our streets and things like that, those are those are particularly fascist features. Uh, the stronger fascism gets, the more violent the sh- these street squads become. So in Greece a few years ago, Golden Dawn street fighters were literally kicking LGBT people and migrants to death, as well as burning down left-wing political centres and attacking left-wingers. Uh, these street gangs act as the foot soldiers that are willing and capable of like, physically destroying anybody or any organisation that could potentially be the catalyst to put up a fight against them. This is exactly why um fascism is so fatally opposed to the trade union movement and the left because we are the social force in the world that could beat it and that could beat it on its own grounds on its own terrain um so when fascism triumphs these street fighting thugs may become co-opted into the state and they often do but they don't start at state level they start on the streets Also, fascism is, like, radically conservative, which I know sounds like a massive oxymoron. Hmm. But where traditional conservatism seeks to maintain the status quo, fascism looks to rip up the status quo and move it further to the right. Um, They are violently opposed to anything that we would consider, like, progressive. Um, so any form of identity that isn't a straight white man uh, is seen as weak and a kind of like a dangerous deviation. So meaning any liberation gains that a society may have made will be rolled back and there's just there's no concept of like civil liberties under under fascism.
0: I think um, talking about the radicalism of fascism is, is quite important as well because it's and this is why so so as I say I, I don't think like the Trump administration is is like fascist mm. in America. And one of the reasons for that is it's not coming into the state with a, a programme of like radically transforming yeah. the American state into a really... sort of totalitarian, like, nightmarish regime, although it may have sort of vague aspirations in, in that direction, that if you look at like classical fascism, when and where it takes power, it very, very quickly sort of attempts to mould the state in its own image. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of radicalism in in that sense that it's, you know, I mean, the Nazis talked about revolution, you know, they talked about like, like overhauling. Again, there's a sort of pale echo of it when Trump talks about the elites and Mm. all all that sort of stuff, but he's not really trying to remould the American establishment.
2: Yeah, but like, I completely agree with all of that. So like fascism in its fullest form is totalitarian and capitalist so like big industry and private ownership still thrive um, under fascism but the state is involved in all aspects and it sits above all of it Um, it's also involved in like all aspects of your life and society from the cradle to the grave dissent is a crime under fascism and uh, like again democracy doesn't exist there's no idea of civil, civil liberties there's no idea of democracy you're not allowed to dissent in any way um but it doesn't start like that um fascism kind of starts its life as a mass popularist movement um one that's capable of mobilizing large sections of the general population and this differs from something like for instance a military coup where a total where the totalitarian dictatorship that's put in charge often has no foothold in the wider society yeah. Yeah. Um, fascism's social base is historically made up of like small business owners and actually large sections of the working class and they mobilize these people by playing on legitimate concerns around things like housing and income and they offer as a solution vacuous and often quite deformed left-wing ideas alongside their nationalism and their racism so for instance, think along the lines of we could all have secure jobs, we could all share this wealth, we could all share the wealth in this nation if we could just get rid of the Jews. And also if you hand over all your power to the state, this is kind of yeah. this is kind of the deformed, the deformed thinking of, of fascism. The bourgeoisie will put up with fascism, um, even if they're not massively into it, they will put up with fascism because it's not communism, it's not socialism, and it's not even social democracy. So that's kind of, that's kind of like the the social base I think of fascism.
0: It's kind of like when they, it, I guess if they're faced with the stark choice of you know, fascism or socialism, the mm. bourgeoisie will choose fascism. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although I think it's, I
1: think it's it's sort of it, it is important to emphasise though that um, fascism is not. The kind of bourgeoisie's preferred means for for organizing their society you do, you do get like some tendencies and voices in the labor movement and on the left who will say you know sort of capitalism like naturally tends towards fascism and really if the kind of ruling class had their way yeah. everywhere would be a fascist state like that, that isn't really true and, and and even to go back to trump like large sections of the american bourgeoisie are Appalled by Trump, yeah, yeah, Um, yeah, and
0: and the the European uh, sort of capitalist liberal establishment is terrified of these nationalist populists. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Obviously, it will try and find ways to assimilate them as much as it can, but it's not, like you say, it's not its preferred method. Of for sure, and I think part of that is to do with the point Ellie made earlier about
1: the weakness, the relative weakness of the labor movement and the left, because in a lot of the examples we're going to be talking about later in the show, and, and certainly in the example I'm going to be talking about from Minneapolis there very much was a gravitation of um, the kind of local bourgeoisie, local big business, the local capitalists, towards fascist organisation because the local capitalists saw in the fascists a potential instrument with which they could smash um, an ascendant and very powerful socialist-led labour movement. Yeah. and And where fascism has taken power historically, that's tended to be the dynamic. A section of the bourgeoisie has facilitated their coming to power or, or, or kind of sat back and let it happen because uh they their, their calculation was well better to have these guys in power than than to have the, the the labor movement take over the left take over the workers take over
2: yeah so yeah i mean um like i say all of these things i think make up fascism although fascism is incredibly hard to define Um, And I don't believe that we are living in a fascist period at the moment, but you can pick pretty much any one of these points and attribute it to various things that we are seeing happen across the world. Um, And as Daniel said, it's really, really important, I think for us to understand that we are in a fragile position and I don't want to be alarmist and you're right that we shouldn't be alarmist, but fascist ideas and ultra right-wing ideas do thrive in times of chaos. and I think post-2008 is an, is an incredibly chaotic time. And yeah, like I say, the, the labour movement is on the back foot and it, there's never been a more important time to look back at our history and, um, and sort of think about how we can move forward, how we can build ourselves and, and how we can prepare for the worst.
1: And in doing so, eventuate the best. Okay, so if you're just joining us, um, I don't know why you'd be doing that, because uh, it's not a live broadcast, (laughs) so uh, if you are just joining us, what's happened is that you've accidentally skipped forward (laughs) to a later part, and what you need to do is go back to the beginning. So, um, okay, welcome back. (laughs)
2: Seamless. Um,
1: You've just heard from uh, Ellie, who's kind of led us in a discussion where we kind of tried to define some of our terms. Um, and we're now going to hear from uh, Professor Edmund the Brain and um, what he's going to be talking about is some of the responses to kind of early fascism what we might call classical fascism on the part of the labour movement and particularly um, transport workers unions uh, a lot of what he's going to be talking about comes from a pamphlet published by the ITF that's the International Transport Workers Federation which is a kind of global um, umbrella body for um, transport workers unions right across the world uh, my own union the RMT is, is an affiliate to that um, so if you want more information on the stuff Ed's going to talk about, uh, we'll put up a link to, to, to that pamphlet in the episode description, so Ed, over to you.
0: Yeah, so, um, it's no accident that classical fascism dates to the end of the First World War, because it arose pretty directly in response to the Russian Revolution and the strengthening of Labour and Socialist movements around Europe. Um Lots of returning sort of demobilized soldiers from various countries in Europe um, joined the sort of uh, street fighting nationalist movements that Ellie was talking about earlier. Um, In Germany, famously, you had a network of organizations called the Freikorps. The Freikorps were uh, in part responsible for the murders of uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the the German communists. Uh, They also fought in the Baltic states. Uh, against uh, Bolsheviks and other socialists in, in, in the Baltic states. Um, in Italy, Italy was the first country to uh, have a sort of fascist takeover, and it, it didn't last very long uh, after after the First World War. In 1922, Mussolini uh, came to power. But Mussolini came to power um, initially in a coalition with mainstream Italian liberal politicians. And the reason for that, and as we've we've mentioned, uh, sort of mentioned again before, um, in 1919 in Italy, 1919, 1920, particularly in Northern Italy, there was a very, very uh, militant labor movement. There were factory occupations. There was uh, an incredibly strong um, Italian Socialist Party, which became the Italian Communist Party. And the Italian left, the Italian labour movement, was appeared to be on the front foot for a couple of years, appear, Italy appeared to be to be moving in that sort of direction. Um, yet within two years after that, Mussolini was in power, and by the end of the 1920s, the sort of radical transformation of the Italian state that I was alluding to earlier had basically happened. By 1927, 28, 29, Mussolini was like a dictator and the bourgeois politicians that he'd been in coalition with were basically nowhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the key features of early Italian fascism were the squadristi, the the squads, again a lot of them demobilised soldiers, but their initial uh, reason for existing was to roam the whole of Italy, beating up and killing. Trade Union, mm-hmm.
2: Could you think of anything more scary than having to fight like a demobbed fucking fascist soldier? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I need to hit the gym today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's important. It's important to note as well in this in this period because because all these countries had relied on conscripted soldiers mm. to to fight in the First World War. A lot of demobbed soldiers were. Left wing as well. A lot of them joined left-wing, various left wing movements and whatever. But it was obviously because of the because of the sort of nationalism, the nationalistic uh, a- elements of fascism. It was obviously a ready made pool of of people for fascists to draw on. Particularly because a lot of people were going home. They didn't have a job to mm. go to. You know, they did. There was a, a sense of sort of demoralization. The the economy of most of these countries was in the toilet and, and all the rest of it. You know, mm. um, so obviously, so Italy goes fascist in the in the twenties. Um, Germany goes fascist about ten years later, in nineteen thirty-three, when when Hitler comes to power. Uh, various regimes in other European central uh, European countries that you can arguably call fascist or certainly had big uh, characteristics of, of, of fascist regimes, like like the regime in Hungary, for example. Um, it's it's also interesting to note as well that a lot of and, and it's and it's a. a an aspect of sort of embarrassment and shame, I think, for the Labour movement, that a lot of early fascists began their political lives in the Labour movement. And so in Italy and in France, for example, uh, a lot of fascist sort of propagandists had started out on the radical wing of the Labour movement. And we we can perhaps talk about why why that might have been the case. But
1: but I think also it's, I mean that's true and you know Mussolini was the was an editor of a socialist party publication for a little while Mm and um you know a lot of the italian the kind of futurists who ended up as fascists had started their life on the left and as socialists or syndicalists that's definitely true but i think what's also worth remembering and emphasizing is the aspect that we kind of mentioned before the idea of the rise of fascism very much being a product of labor movement defeat um, you know, as you said, like the reason fascists came to power in Italy is because the labor, you know, the workers, workers lost. You know, there was a moment, of, you know, of kind of potential conquest of social power by by the workers' movement, mm-hmm. and that was defeated. And Trotsky makes the point about the to sort of to sort of look at you know the other eventuality. Trotsky makes the point about the Kornilov revolt in Russia that if that had succeeded, so that so so there's somewhere where a kind of proto fascist you know, militarist, proto-totalitarian movement resting to some degree on conscript soldiers and certain plebeian elements, you know, attempts to overthrow the provisional government and is defeated by the Labour movement, by the Bolsheviks. Trotsky makes the point that if the Kornilov revolt had succeeded, we'd have a Russian word for fascism instead of an instead Italian of an one. an Italian one, yeah. Um, so I think, I think that illustrates quite acutely how sort of fascism at the level of power... Is sort of necessarily a product of labour movement
0: defeat. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other interesting things about Italian fascism, and the Nazis attempted to do this, but but not not really in the same way and with the same degree of success. But Italian fascism, um, it set up its own trade union organisations, mm. and it and it took from sort of pre-war syndicalism, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. It, it took certain sort of tactical uh, sort of strategic elements of that the idea that you sort of work within mainstream trade union federations and then and then kind of like split them off and kind. Of, and it, it's, it's worth mentioning as well that, that the concept of trade unions under fascism is, is quite important to what a fascist regime is mm. because under fascism trade unions are basically an arm of the state mm. to impose discipline in, in the factory and in the shop Um, And that's certainly what the Italian trade unions very rapidly became under Mussolini. And obviously the Nazis had the the German Labour League or whatever.
1: There's also another social form that saw trade unions much in that
0: same way, isn't there? But that's another discussion discussion for for another another time. We'll talk about about Stalinism another time. (laughs) Um, So... Throughout the 20s, 30s, uh, several European countries succumb to fascism or to, ver- to regimes that are very very close to it. Um, obviously, the Labour movement doesn't take this lying down and the Labour movement between the wars is, is very strong, very powerful, um, very well organised, much, uh, much more so, I think, than it is now and much more organised along international lines than it is now. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the ITF, the International Transport Workers' Federation, is that the ITF had a very internationalist approach to fighting fascism. It wasn't sort of doing it on a country-by-country country basis. It recognised that the threat was international and the response had to be international. And because of the nature of uh, a lot of the work of, of uh, people who were affiliated to the ITF, you know, dockers, sailors, mm. people who were part of an international sort of economic system... Mm. It gave them the power...
1: Global
0: production... Yeah, it 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 gave them more power than other workers to have sort of (coughs) direct solidarity to, to workers in other countries. So transport unions were heavily targeted by the fascist regimes because transport workers are... And Daniel will love the fact that I'm about to say this, but it's it's very obvious to see how powerful, how potentially yeah. powerful transport workers are. We absolutely are, are and you must, you must never forget
1: that. Both, <laughs> and, but, both, both in terms of our strategic position within the capitalist economy, but also in our relationship, the relationship between me and you. You must remember that. <laughs> right.
0: And we can see the genesis of fascism beginning. <laughs> Mike doesn't make right, Daniel. So... Very, very soon after Mussolini came to power in Italy, 30,000 railway workers were sacked because they basically, they gutted, they blacklisted the industry, they gutted it, they got rid of all the militants. Um, Similarly, in in Germany uh, and in countries that the Germans subsequently occupied, uh, transport workers' unions were particularly targeted. Uh, The leader of the Norwegian Railway Workers' Union, uh, Ludvig Buland, was murdered by the Nazis. Uh, the leader of the French Railway Workers' Federation, PSMR, was also murdered by the Nazis. Um, the International Transport Federation published an underground newsletter um, after the Nazis took power in, in Germany, and the people mainly responsible for distributing that newsletter before the war were Dutch sailors and, and people that worked on the canal systems that linked Holland to mm. the Rhineland. Mm. And so that sort of trade union propaganda that sort of anti-fascist propaganda was it was being it was being conceived of and carried out in a in an international way um if anyone's ever come come across the uh, memoirs of jan Valtin, who was a, a communist activist between the wars um there's a lot in his memoir of, about the, how key the seafarers unions in the baltic were uh, organizing sort of resistance to the nazis Getting propaganda sort of smuggled into Germany and all the all the rest of it. Um, one of the big uh, elements, obviously, of anti-fascist solidarity in this period was the Spanish Civil War, which res- was the result of a. I mean it's it's always kind of disingenuous that it's called the Spanish Civil War because it it kind of a civil war kind of evokes the uh, the idea that there are sort of two clashing armies vying for, for power or whatever what it essentially was, was a, was a fascist uprising against a, a legitimate dem- democratic government. Mm. Um, and again, in the fascist zones in Spain, uh, trade unions were, were repressed completely. Um, aid to the Spanish Republic came from, from trade unions all around Europe, all, all around the world. Um, interestingly it says in this itf pamphlet and this is something that that could uh, could benefit from more research maybe is that the, the scandinavian unions the scandinavian uh, seafarers unions and dockers unions wanted a full boycott of ships going to franco spain uh the the, the british yeah. the british unions didn't agree with it because the british government's policy was non-intervention mm, yeah. and they didn't want to rock rock the boat on on non-intervention which is a if, if true is 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 incredibly, I up on that bit as well. <laughs> incredibly shameful. Oh, so shameful! So yeah, shameful. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, a Belgian uh, a Belgian sailor, Omer Beku, was uh, arrested for smuggling arms into Spain, uh, when there was supposed to be an agreement that that no arms were supposed to go in, but obviously the fascist powers were completely flaunting that and, and sending military hardware there all the time, um, and an underground network of dockers in Hamburg, Nazi-controlled Hamburg, um, collected and passed on information
2: on nazi arms shipments to spain so just just to reiterate this um under nazi germany there were groups of trade unionists like basically sabotaging what was happening and giving away like key military information and our trade union movement didn't want to go against our government's policy of like turning a blind eye to what was happening yeah it's it really does make you um
0: really proud to be british yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, and of course of course there are, there are tremendous uh, individual cases of, of heroism from within the British trade union movement in this period as well and and we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that um I mean so so it's it's, it's difficult to imagine. I think it's difficult to imagine because none of us have faced these sort of mm-hmm. conditions you have to organize it in but the and, and obviously none of this stuff was successful in overthrowing these these fascist regimes but I think it's very impressive and very resilient um example of trade unions taking as trade unions taking firstly an internationalist approach to, to this problem uh, but also recognizing that you still have power as as organized workers mm. even under the worst and most brutal mm. regimes there are still things you can do obviously you don't want to stick your head above the parapet on on every issue and end up all getting shot and arrested but there were still concrete acts of solidarity that could be done by german dockers or whoever you know
1: well you i mean you mentioned uh, the netherlands a couple of times and um you know arguably one of the most kind of heroic um, moments in european labor and and working class history of of the period you're talking about is the 1941 amsterdam general strike Mm. um so you know holland is under nazi occupation um and there's a a general strike in 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 Amsterdam in protest at that occupation, specifically in protest at um, you know Nazi policy towards the Jews, mm. um, which is which is significant both because it's a it's an act of sort of organised labour movement anti-fascism, instrumentalising their power as workers at the point of production, um, you know to, to 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 oppose fascism, but also it's that you know they're not just they're not just opposing fascism because it's anti-trade union, they're taking up kind of anti-racist anti-racist questions as well. I mean, that that strike was, as I understand it, largely um, coordinated through the the Dutch Communist Party, which was obviously kind of Stalinist and sort of Moscow-aligned, but on the ground, you know, um, an incredibly heroic act. And you're right, it does sort of... Well I mean you can, you can either look at it as a sort of source of Im- you know, oh, these people were able to do this and what was going on in the British movement, or you know what what's going on today? Does, isn't it embarrassing? But I, I prefer to look at it as a source of inspiration really that he, yeah. as Ed says, even under the most incredibly dangerous and adverse conditions, workers were still able to organize, were still able to act in, um, act in solidarity, and I think um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's something we should
0: aspire to. Yeah. And it's, the the ITF uh, has a particular um, interest in remembering this period and, it, and its role in it because one of the leaders of the ITF, uh, Hermann Yokada, uh, was beaten to death in a Nazi concentration camp in, in 1939. Um, the ITF was based in, in Holland uh, before the Nazis mm. invaded. Um, and the the office sort of moved on mass to London, and I, th- I think the ITF is the only uh, global union federation uh, th- which is based in London, still based in London now. I think so. Yeah. And the reason for that is is because they had to get out of Holland when the when the Nazis invaded. Um, so that's just that's just one example of um, a certain section of workers and the, and the sort of particular power they had as sort of transport workers in in this in this global system to uh to try and resist in in the worst possible circumstances. Uh Daniel's going to talk now about another example of from the 30s of uh, workers resisting sort of classical fascist movements.
1: Uh okay so as regular um listeners of uh, Labor Days will know both um, of you uh, yeah and um I hope <laughs> Hi, I hope it is just uh, regular listeners we don't like uh, new people tuning in so um, we'll know uh, one of my recurrent uh, preoccupations is with the Minneapolis Teamsters Union in the 1930s um, which was involved in an in- incredibly sort of inspiring city-wide strike movement that posed the question of class power in quite a fundamental way and is really a model for i think how to organize a union how to organize an industrial dispute and it was it was led by um, by, by revolutionary socialists as well and it's, it's a good model for how to, to kind of be a, re, a revolutionary socialist at work and, and, and in a union and uh, I bang on about this all the time and I'm very happy now to have an opportunity to talk in a little more depth and a little more detail about one of the uh, <laughs> um, one, one of the particularly inspiring episodes from, from the history of, of this union in Minneapolis so I'm going to be talking about um, uh, the anti-fascist activity of uh, local 544 which was Previously, local five seven four it ch- changed its designation, um, and, and they're organizing against uh, against fascism. So, uh, in 1933, um, the the kind of fascist demagogue uh, William Dudley Pelley founded an organization called the Silver Legion, um, whose whose cadres became known as silver shirts, consciously modelled after Hitler's brown shirts. Um, its membership peaked at around 15,000, so you know, not an enormous organization in the American context, but Fifteen thousand organized fascists—it's definitely enough to have a social impact. And in the late thirties, it made a conscious effort to organize in Minneapolis. Um, efforts that were led predominantly by Pelly's deputy it was a guy called Roy Zachary. Um, so, uh, a key part of the reason the fascists were targeting Minneapolis was precisely because of the um, the role and power of um, local five seven four slash five four four who, as I mentioned, had won a heroic strike in a few years earlier in '34, which had confronted and, and broken the power of the Citizens' Alliance, which was a kind of far-right, I guess you could say arguably sort of proto-fascist movement in itself, a kind of violently anti-union employers cartel, which had dominated economic
0: and social life in the city for a number of years. There were, there were a lot of organisations like that in America between the wars. Um, it, right at the end of the First World War, uh, when the industrial workers of the world, who we've previously mentioned were were still very powerful um an organization called the American Legion which was again was an organization of demobbed mm-hmm. soldiers um they took it upon themselves to smash up uh, IWW halls mm-hmm. they they lynched IWW members they you know they they were very much a sort of fascist like squ- squadrist mm-hmm. sort of organization they still exist uh, today as a as a veterans association so <laughs> i'm sure they've disavowed that part of their history <laughs> Um,
1: yeah who knows um, so uh, Dudley Pelly and uh, Roy Zachary their, their belief was that by uh, by relating to and mobilising uh, former Citizens Alliance figures and supporters and, and kind of tapping into the hostility that existed amongst a particular social layer um, to the, the power of the socialist led Local 544 um, they could build a, a kind of significant base for themselves and um, and their Minneapolis efforts were, in, in a very real and direct sense, an attempt to kind of declare war on Local 544, which is a really acute illustration of, of some of the things that Ellie was talking yeah. about at the top of the show and some of the things we've, we've mentioned subsequently about how, in situations where organised labour is powerful, it will always be one of, if not the main, kind of pr- the primary target for, for fascist organisation. Um, And and local bosses in Minneapolis at this time, local capitalists, saw in the silver shirts, even when they were a relatively marginal force to begin with, a potentially powerful instrument with which to kind of take revenge, if you like, on on Local 544. And George Belden, um, who was the leader of a a local employers association, which was in in many ways a kind of inheritor of the Citizens' Alliance legacy, Um, he was an attendee at many um, silver shirt rallies and meetings. In Minneapolis. So, how did the Teamsters respond? What did they do in the face of this kind of declaration of war on their organisation? So, the leaders of Local 544, um, many of them were members of um, the Socialist Workers' Party, um, that's no relation to the contemporary British group of the same name, um, uh, were very much influenced by uh, Leon Trotsky's analysis of fascism, uh, the theory of the Workers' United Front, Trotsky's analysis in terms of the, the kind of specifically anti labour movement character of fascism. Um, and, and the need for labor movement self-defense, um, and they formed an organization called the Union Defense Guard, the, the UDG. Uh, Farrell Dobbs, who was a, was a key leader of, uh, of all of that and the kind of chronicler of this heroic period, um, writes in uh, Teams to Politics, which is one of a series of four books uh, he, he wrote about this period, and from which kind of most of the stuff in, in my presentation here is drawn. Uh, so he wrote the formation of the guard was reported in the Northwest Organizer, which was um, the union's newspaper and a press release announcing the step was handed to the daily papers the new body's functions were described in the report as quote defense of the union's picket lines headquarters and members against anti-labor violence end quote Uh, through this action the local served public notice uh, that it would take care of its own defense putting no misplaced reliance on the police for protection so there's a kind of important element of self-organisation and kind of anti-statism in there as well. So Dobbs continues, and I think this is really key, um, the Guard was in no sense an elite body. It was simply a business-like formation open to any active union member. Um, The only requirements for inclusion in its ranks were readiness to defend the unions from attack. Moreover, its activities were conducted only with the consent of the membership of the trade unions involved um, under their control. So I think that's worth just kind of dwelling on for a minute, um, a lot of contemporary anti-fascist campaigning in the labor movement is conducted on the basis kind of of union branches or unions at national level sort of contracting out their anti-fascism to external campaigns. Mm. Um, usually that takes the form of you know donating funds or, or providing a logo for a leaflet and, and often not very much more. And the UDG model is different. It's about unions conducting anti-fascist activity and organizing under their own banners and under their own direct democratic control directly mobilising uh, their members to defend their union, to defend their movement, to defend and advance um, working class social interests. Um, so after UDG intelligence gathering and mobilisation disrupted a planned rally at which Pelly was due to speak, um, Roy Zachary was, was defiant and said that the silver shirts would rally again in Minneapolis um, with police support. Um, so in response, the UDG's um, elected command, its kind of elected leadership, I mean, and it did organise in a fairly kind of military way, but 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 democratically, you know, all the all the the captains of the of the um, units, as they called them, were all elected. So they decided that they would sort of put on a show of force to, to try and deter the fascists. Um, and at just an hour's notice, uh, it called an emergency action that mobilised 300 workers, with only the 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 kind of unit leaders knowing that the thing was a drill and that the fascists weren't actually about to turn up in town. Um, and, and after this show of force, you know, 300. Armed, many of them, trade unionists and workers, mobilised on the streets. The silver shirts never attempted to rally in Minneapolis after that. Um, Dobbs's book tells how uh, to compensate the men, and as far as I know, um, it, they were all men, um, for disrupting their kind of evenings plans with the drill. <laughs> um, the UDG leaders had booked out seats at a local burlesque theatre, to which the UDG subsequently. Dobbs says, marched in a long column, armbands prominently displayed. Now, that's a very funny anecdote, but there are also some kind of problematic gender politics at work there, and maybe one aspect we might discuss, or, or maybe people can discuss on our social media if they want, is how these models of, of kind of direct action, working class anti-fascism can avoid machismo and be accessible to, to kind of workers of, of, of all genders.
2: Yeah. Um, I, d- I do sort of want to speak up for for the Teamsters a little bit here, though. Um, I mean, the women played a central role in the union. Um, and although it, it, you're right, like they shouldn't have been going off to a burlesque show and there's a lot of this kind of like really laddy behaviour throughout all of the books, which personally I find incredibly funny, but I understand can also be problematic. That's because you are such a lad. So. <laughs> I can't help it, lads, lads, lads. <laughs> um, so yeah, like the women did play an absolutely central role and all the way through the through the Minneapolis teams, Teamster Strikes, the women were at the very forefront of what was going on, um, and yeah, just played an absolutely central role. So it's it's not that they were completely sidelined. Sure. All the time. Yeah.
1: Um, indeed, uh, for 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 my money, the the UDG is one of the highest expressions of of labour movement anti-fascism. It's workers' self-defence um, organised on a on a on a democratic basis, and we kind of might we might pause here to just maybe put you know put put that kind of particular issue of like physical confrontation i guess out for discussion because in the contemporary situation there's a lot of debates around that you know you see the kind of kind of the media discourse in america about antifa and what went on around charlottesville and this question of you know is it an affront to to free speech and democratic values to attempt to confront fascism and, and and to organize against it on on the basis of physical force, and I think for me, that like UDG is the kind of answer to that question. You know, look, I think it's right to, you know, in, in in terms of sort of basic principle, like no one should seek violence. Like, you know, violence is violence is a bad thing. But given the nature of what fascism is, and given that, as we've seen throughout history, and indeed in this case in Minneapolis, it represents a very direct declaration of warfare, of violent warfare, of physically organised warfare on ethnic minorities, LGBT people labour movement institutions, in this case, whatever it's not possible to meet that other than by
2: attempting to physically confront it yeah. um, I, I mean you can't beat fascism with like informed debate. I think with the Teamsters this is another case of like people who could they could definitely handle themselves um, they they knew what they were doing and I think some of them even had military backgrounds so um, as much as we don't want to seek violence and we don't go out of our way to incite violence, there is something about knowing that you are able to defend your organisation, you're able to defend your comrades, and you're able to defend yourself. I
0: think it's generally important to... Um, and whether, you're, whether you're demonstrating against fascists or whether you're just in a... You might be in a particularly heated sort of dispute where the police are being very violent or whatever... I think it's important if you're putting people in those sort of positions through the political activity that you're organising to be basically upfront with people about the, the danger that might exist mm. on, on on demonstrations like that or in confrontations like that, and I and, and people should be you know prepared for that um, without wanting to like sort of put people off from coming to sort of anti-fascist action. Actions or whatever, like you've got these people are like they do want to smash us up. Yeah, they do want to violently repress our entire movement. So you've got to be you've got to be prepared for what that means. You know,
1: sure, and I mean that that's absolutely all true. And I think what's kind of important about the UDG in terms of this debate about you know physical confrontation or or not is that they absolutely understood the need for. Workers' self-defense and physical confrontation of the fascists, but attempted to organise that on the most democratic basis possible. So they provided, you know, so Dobbs mentions like it wasn't an elitist organization. Anyone could join, and they would you would be provided with training in how to do this stuff. And I think there are some models of kind of direct action, physical confrontation, anti-fascism, which do tend towards elitism, mm-hmm. which are quite macho, which are kind of conspiratorial. Um, and the, the UDG kind of avoids that and it sort of it is you know it does exactly what, what Ed says it's up front about the need for self defence and physical confrontation but attempts to organise that on on a democratic basis so um, just as a kind of coda to all of this um, there are some uh, some some recent attempts to uh, organise along somewhat similar lines in the American labour movement. So in in 2015 and 16, some Vermont locals of the United Electrical, Radio and Machine Workers Union, the UE, um, organised what they called a the workers' defence guard to oppose KKK activity locally. Um, and uh, in previous decades, in the 90s, some UE organisers in Pennsylvania were also involved in. Uh, attempts to organise kind of labour movement and community opposition to, to, to clan activity, and our, our friends over at the uh, Smash Up Derby podcast, um, their most recent episode features an interview with one of those UE organisers who, who was involved in that. And um, interestingly, in terms of what we've just been saying, she, she actually takes a much more kind of pro non-violent approach. Um, so I guess kind of coming from a, a different side of that debate than, than, than we've just been articulating. But if people want to go and um, Check that out. It's, uh, there's a link on our on our Twitter feed. So, just I guess to wrap up, like our conditions, you know, in the British labor movement today are are, are very different from those of, of local five four four in Minneapolis in in the late '30s. There isn't an armed paramilitary fascist force capable of holding large rallies in in big cities and, and physically threatening and attacking labor movement activity. But I think the UDG model is still is still one we should um, aspire to or, or or kind of keep on the shelf, if you like. Um, for, for a situation in which it might become a little bit more imperative. Um, just last week, the week before we were recording this, um, 25,000 kind of football casuals marched through London, I think that's the figure, um, certainly in the tens of thousands, m- mobilised by the so-called Football Lads Alliance, um, which in, in many ways is a kind of inheritor of, of a lot of the EDL's political legacy. And it's not at all inconceivable that a movement like that could grow over into a much more politically conscious and ideologically worked out far-right street movement that does threaten working class organisation given certain conditions. And 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 you don't have to go very far back to, to when the EDL were much stronger than they are now. There were a couple of cases, not not many, and they were they were they were isolated, but they did exist of EDL members um turning up to kind of left-wing or anti-fascist yeah. meetings they, and, they and, and threatening f- them. They threatened to
0: turn up to picket lines as well in, the, um, in the, I think, about around 2012-2013. Yeah,
1: indeed. The, so so, so it's, not, it's not inconceivable that, that things could develop in, in that direction. And I think the UDG provides a model for how trade unions specifically can organise their own self-defence and kind of counter-offence. And what, what's also kind of really crucial about the UDG is that it was linked to... A union that had a, you know, it was the the, the activity of the union and the kind of political forces involved, as well as being, you know, sort of self-defensive against fascism, it was also attempting to change the social conditions that allowed fascism to grow. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important link. It's not just about a sort of, you know, uh, physical force anti-fascism divorced from wider politics, it's about um, working-class self-defense combined with an attempt to. you know, change society um, and, and, and change the conditions in, in, in which, fascism, which fascism can develop. So whoever far-right mobilisation has in its sights, whether that's um, organised labour, uh, people of colour, LGBT people, other ethnic minorities, or any of its other targets, it's the working class movement, um, ideally in alliance with self-organised movements of oppressed people that has to take on the responsibility of organising um, defence and counter-offence uh, against that, and uh, I said that in a very American way because uh, I'm talking about Minneapolis, mm-hmm. um, and I think the UDG model provides the antidote to both the kind of cross-class liberal statist forms of anti-fascism which um, sort of predominate in a lot of mainstream political discourse, and if we're being honest, inside a lot of the labour movement as well. Do you mean the sort
0: of stuff that that more or less just relies on saying? fascism's bad yeah exactly bad, you, know? you know like why don't we just ban them and hope that they'll go away so yeah like, you know yeah. you
1: don't vote nazi and have a rally with the kind of local lib dems tories and the vicar you know that, that that's, that kind that's of...
2: like 10 miles away from their mobilization yeah <laughs> sure so, so
1: those kind of as i say kind of very liberal cross-class and, and often very statist models which rely on calling on the, the you know the state or the police to kind of to, to ban fascist organisation, which is something the UDG very explicitly didn't do, so the UDG offers an antidote to that, and it also offers an antidote to more kind of elitist, exclusionary conceptions of of, of direct action um, anti-fascism, um, and f- for that and many other reasons, uh, as as always. Um, the answer, basically, the, I think, basically, the answer to any political question in the Labour movement you, you care to pose is just, just, just do what the Minneapolis be, be teams, like. Be like the What would the, teams
2: what, what, the Minneapolis like? <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: so com, coming soon from Labour Days, we're going to be producing some uh, like bracelets and and like wristbands that say WWFDD. What would Farrell Dobbs <laughs> do? Mm.
2: So uh, to conclude, Ed is going to give us a more recent example of trade unions organising against fascism. So take it away, Ed. Yeah, I think it's
0: uh, so. This is this is far less sort of dramatic and and violent than the things we have been talking about. Um, but I think it's important to to flag this up because it, it's a very like impressive uh, action that was undertaken by the members of the Communication Workers Union who we who we mentioned at, at the beginning. Um, and I think it's important to to just because you know whatever whatever we can do to frustrate and undermine and, and destroy uh, fascist politics as trade unionists, we should we should do it. however, however, apparently might not might not apparently be as sort of heroic as some of the things we've been talking about, but but still very important. So you might remember, a political party called the British National Party, the BNP. <laughs> These days, they're something of a shadow of their former self, thankfully. Um, but, you know, about 10 years ago, they were they were fairly significant mm. electoral force for a while. Um, in 2009, in the European Parliament elections, um, you know, this was not long after the BNP's kind of uh, uh, electoral uh, peak, I suppose, and... Um, members of the communication workers union around the country uh, basically refused to deliver uh, BNP election mm. material they were you know you know uh, postmen post were, were was basically saying I don't want to have to deliver this fascist crap through people's letterboxes uh, mm. it, it, it wasn't all over the country but it was certainly widespread um, most uh uh significantly in, in Bridgewater in the southwest, and also in Macclesfield and parts of uh, parts of the northwest.
2: That well. is so surprising. Sorry to any listeners living in Bridgewater but I've been there, I know it very, very well and I didn't even know there was the, a trade union movement the, in Bridgewater. The Bridgewater <laughs> depot
0: is
1: very, yeah. very, very <laughs> militant. It's, it's, it's a historic centre of really impressive uh, yeah. militancy and rank-and-file organisation in the postal yeah. sector actually. Lots See, of the of problem
2: fear. is I've just got this petty like uh, town rivalry uh, thing going just on So I lived oh. in Toronto for a while uh, so
0: this is this is just your yeah your, your reactionary <laughs> co- countryside feud <laughs> you really should get over the communication workers union and Royal Mail in, in their ag- agreement at the time had a conscience clause which meant that uh, union members shouldn't have been bound to deliver uh, these BNP leaflets but in certain offices uh, managers basically said you've got to do it or you'll either be sacked or you'll be disciplined or whatever. Um, uh, apparently in Macclesfield, they were told that if they refused to deliver the BNP leaflets, they wouldn't be allowed to deliver the leaflets of any other political parties. Mm. Um, because of course, we've got to be fair and even-handed to, <laughs> to the fascists. This is the
2: BBC. <laughs> um,
0: now, I'm not in the habit of quoting fascists, but uh, a man called Simon Darby, who was the sort of the the, the BMP's sort of comic relief figure of, of the of the time. Um, who often popped up on on the telly to say ridiculous things. Um, he said, um, we have a contract with the Royal Mail to deliver our election leaflets. Uh, some will be binned by Labour-supporting postmen who want to corrupt the democratic process. People will make up their minds about the Communication Workers' Union telling people what to do. This is the sort of thing that is happening in Zimbabwe. <laughs> now, I wasn't aware that the CWU had much influence in the... <laughs> the, the, the government of involved with this but you know so and ultimately like like this happened leaflets were were not delivered and uh to my knowledge no one was sacked because the union organisation was strong enough to protect people that, that that didn't want to do it um and i think that's a you know in the in the context of the times that we're living in like, that's that's a pretty impressive mm. act of trade union anti-fascism I think in, in For a sure.
1: way I, I think I think it is worth spelling out you know exactly why what they did wasn't a you know terrible affront to the Democratic process um, because you know I, I wouldn't be particularly in favor of postal workers refusing to deliver the mail of even liberal you know, Democrats yeah liberal Democrats or even the Tories particularly. You know, I, I, am, I am in favor of sort of basic democratic norms and, and, and I'm very much for free speech. But the, this is the point, and you know, we're kind of near the end of the episode. If you haven't picked it up by now, I guess you haven't been listening. But this is the point that there's something particular about fascism. It's not just an aggregation of nasty ideas, it's not just a kind of particularly um, aggressive iteration of like right wing ideology. It's, it's a very specific political form that, by its very nature, wherever it exists, in however small a form, from you know a small meeting, one stall in a town center right the way up to some of the instances we've been talking about where it's on the point of 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 taking power or has taken power wherever it exists, it represents an immediate declaration of war you know and I use that language quite deliberately an immediate declaration of war on ethnic minorities LGBT people disabled people, and first and foremost on the labor movement mm. so any of the stuff we've been talking about tonight, whether that's Workers organising to physically confront fascism either as a means of self-defence or, 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 or counter-attack or postal workers in 2009 refusing to deliver fascist leaflets. Um, that's, they're, not, they're not frustrating or, or, or affronting the democratic process. Actually, they're upholding it. Mm. They're upholding the democratic process. They're defending free speech by frustrating the efforts of people whose very existence represents an a existential threat to any democratic norms mm. and any free speech at all, and that's
0: that's the flip side of the coin is that the labour and th- we don't talk about this enough. I don't. I don't think. I, I mean, we we occasionally, I suppose, slag the labour movement off from the inside. You know, we one of the things that we do on this podcast is we criticise it. We we because we want it to be better, we point out its shortcomings or whatever. But the labour movement is before you even start to talk about socialism or anything like that the labour movement is the most consistently democratic political movement in society and and has been for over a hundred years and the only real mass force which can be relied on to even to defend the the sort of democracy that we have now is us I think Labour Days was presented by Ed
1: Mustill Ellie Clark and Daniel Randall and was produced by Liam McNulty Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Find us on Twitter at Labour underscore Days and Facebook at Labour Days Podcast. Download Labour Days on iTunes.